I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is the weekly briefing for the week ending January 28th. The world is still working on healing damaged supply chains. The automotive market was a prominent victim of circumstance and poor planning, but that was hardly the only vertical hit hard. We hear a lot from distributors who obviously play key roles in keeping supply chains intact. Contract manufacturers, though, have the opportunity to glimpse the conditions of an entire supply chain, from parts suppliers to distributors to manufacturing customers. This week, our guest is Derek Kane, Vice President of KMC Systems, which plays an important role in supporting the medical electronics industry. First, here's a quick overview of some of the other stories we covered in EE Times this week. The world still has high-tech supply chain problems. The U.S. had some big plans to respond, but they were getting stuck. There was a concerted effort this past week to break up the logjam. First up, the U.S. government announced that semiconductor inventories in the U.S. have been reduced from a supply that could last weeks to a supply that will last days. We've got that story. Next, the Biden administration and Intel coordinated an announcement that Intel will be building a new, massive manufacturing center in Ohio. We've got a separate story on Intel's new fab. All of that finally seemed to prompt some action by the U.S. House of Representatives to pass a bill to encourage the industry to build more manufacturing capacity and perform more research and development. We've got details on the House bill, how it jibes with a similar Senate bill, and what happens next. Finally, a story on the slow rollout of 5G wireless services. From 5G's conception, consumer cellular service was only one of the reasons to upgrade from 4G. One expectation was that new 5G infrastructure would make it easier for private companies and organizations to build their own limited networks for their own purposes. We've got a story on how that trend is going. We invite you to visit the website at eetimes.com to read these stories and many others. The world is understandably obsessed about supply chains. The effects of the global disruptions to supply chains are continuously in view. Whether we're reading about lower automotive production levels in our news feeds, or noticing ourselves that this week it's curiously difficult to find a bag of flour at our local grocery stores. When the subject comes up in military circles, the word used instead is logistics. During World War II, the Army Chief of Staff was George C. Marshall. Marshall's success was due in no small part to the attention he paid to logistics. That led to a wonderful quip from Admiral Ernest King, who was Commander-in-Chief of the United States Fleet and Chief of Naval Operations during World War II. I don't know what the hell this logistics is that Marshall is always talking about, but I want some of it, King was supposed to have said. He was joking, probably. Generals through the ages have known that logistics is paramount. Wars are won and lost that way. A horse. My kingdom for a horse. Right? Logistics is no less important to private enterprise. Paying attention to logistics, the supply chain, is a key element of economic vitality. My colleague, Barbara Jorgensen, the editor of our sister publication, EPS News, is an expert on the global supply chain. 
She recently had a conversation with Derek Kane, Vice President and General Manager of KMC Systems, a standalone subsidiary of Elbit Systems of America. KMC is a contract manufacturer that caters to the medical electronics segment. Here's Barbara Jorgensen of EPS News and Derek Kane of KMC Systems. First of all, let's acknowledge um, why we're here today, which is the opening of your innovation center in Cambridge, yeah. Mass. Yes, so it's a super exciting time. Uh, great opening, Sanami. Great to see so many people here. Yes, yeah, so about 18 months ago, we're painting this at the five-year business plan for what KMC wanted to be when we grow up. I say grow up, we're a 41-year-old company. We've been around a while. But how do we... How do we grow to to equal the aspirations that we have, right? We're a technology company. We're deep-rooted in life sciences with PCR technology and lots of other things. And for, for me to really capitalize on some of the new markets, whether it's next-gen sequencing, cell or gene therapy, or even the pharma bioscience space, uh, we need to be in Cambridge, right? This is this is the this is the the pulse of the world of biopharma life sciences. So. For KMC that not a lot of people have heard of to be here in such a in, in such a prime location is just phenomenal for me. Uh, the talent we can attract from a, a diversity and inclusion point of view, the local community outreach we can get with the academic institutes, uh, some of the startup companies that are there, it, it kind of uh, it, it, it's the vision of what we are at Elbit, which is an entrepreneurial technology company, and we really want to grow this life sciences company. We're growing it, and and this is kind of the beachhead of our innovation hub for 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 the company and, and for Elbit. There's a lot of adjacency technologies with what KMC does and what our parent company does in terms of uh, thermal cycling and electro-optics and imaging, etc. That's highly applicable and highly adjacent technologies for KMC. So you see um, an opportunity for cross cross pollinization, right? And is is that happening now, or is is this an incentive that you're really just kind of getting getting physically down to? I mean, this is a space. This is a workspace. It it, it it's it's happening now. Uh, it, this is so, so yes, it's happening. We're doing it. The investment here is also somewhat speculative around new markets. We've done extensive market studies, but. Uh, the synergies between our parent company technology, what we can do here, even on things like detection method within the life sciences space uh, of how you detect disease states or virus states and how you capture that, whether it's an image-based capturing methodology or a nanopore technology. Some of the base technologies in that capability is highly adjacent to a parent company. So you look at Elbit and KMC, we've got a lot of IP behind this, and it's how we deploy that IP in new markets. We've got we've got components and modules that are in the Mars rover that some of that technology is highly applicable to life sciences. So really being here is aimed at creating this echo chamber of innovation, right? We're, we're, we're organically growing our business. We're going to organically serve customers through the center. But creating that 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 environment, that cultural environment that, that we have here with the I think um, I read somewhere that uh, during an academic year, there's something like 300,000 students within within a five-mile, 10-mile geography. So just think of the talent there, the innovation, the ideas. Uh, we're looking to recruit in the next six to 12 months about 60 engineers. So just that to me is exciting about how we differentiate business. 
Uh, we've had a number of customers leading MedTech life sciences. We're talking some of the biggest life sciences, MedTech companies in the world through this facility in the last week or so since we opened with uh, we had a, a large customer in this morning and they were just super excited about the opportunity this creates. They were talking about some use case problems from a scientific point of view and, and bringing that to the table for us to kind of solve. And that, that's where it gets exciting when you look at these scientific chemistry issues that they're trying to figure out and us being an industrialized partner that can help bring that to reality. Well, you have a fundamental advantage that a lot of manufacturers or a lot of people in manufacturing really don't think about, and that is you have a physical facility an hour from here. Correct. Um, I know companies that have tried to design and produce products with their partners in China. Yes. Tell me, you know, how that is just an, a huge advantage, um, particularly, you know, given the, the Cambridge and Merrimack and I'm sure locale. Yeah, yeah. I mean, KMC's corporate headquarters is Merrimack, New Hampshire, Elbit, our parent company, Elbit America, parent company's headquarters is in Fort Worth, Texas. But yeah, so we, we have a large manufacturing facility, 360,000 square feet in Merrimack, New Hampshire. Uh, when I'm telling customers about it, and they're like, where's Merrimack, New Hampshire? I'm saying, just come, it's beautiful. Or, we're sandwiched between the outlet malls and the Budweiser Brewery, so there's there's something there for everybody. Uh, and, and we've we've been there for forty years. Uh, I think one of the key differentiators for for us is is just being based on our scale and size. We had a deliberate strategy that was questioned at times around onshoring. So we developed the campus-based supply model where you put a pin in the map, and whether it's eighty miles or hundred miles or hundred and fifty miles. There's, there's this kind of epi, epicenter from that, that pin in the map where our manufacturing location is, where 85 plus percent of our supply base is locally positioned. Now, you, you'll get lots of supply chain gurus, you know, your total cost of ownership model's not right, et cetera. But, but for us, building long-term relationships with suppliers, when you look at our design cycles, the design cycles against some of these high precision instruments, that definition of early supply enrollment and early supply engagement when not not when you're designing something but when you're ideation something and getting their input, we we found time and time again that you take cost out at that stage, mm-hmm. it stays with you longer rather than designing something that's subpar, localizing it to China or, or offshoring it to China where you maybe get rate variances, but then you hit an inflection point where you can't take any more cost out because you need to design it. The the offshoring strategy, they're not necessarily, some of that supply chain is not set up for re-engineering. They're not set up for redesigning certain high complex sub-assemblies and some of the stuff we're doing. When we first spoke, we were, you know, ramping up um, with COVID. Um, your demand increased, like you say, four to, four to six-fold. Um, your lead times were increasing. Now, given the fact that semiconductors have something like a 47 to 52-week lead time, uh, re, uh, help me remember, what was your sort of breaking point with lead time and how quickly were you able to reverse that? There's obviously some commodities, some components that you can't onshore. Semiconductor is one of those. So we made deliberate ploys to 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 buy differently in terms of MOQs. So that supply chain tail, trying to buy that supply chain tail on monthly increments. It, you add overhead costs because you've got this tail of a huge number of parks, use a huge number of suppliers, so you've got to staff up a large so, purchasing organization to staff that. You look at the dollar value that goes with that, well, is it really worth it, right? So 
buying slightly larger MLQs, uh, and a slightly larger stocking uh, quantities really helps see us through that lead time. So yes, lead times were increasing where we impacted. Of course we were. But the impact to business continuity was nowhere near where it was in the rest of the world because we had that buffer stock. And that buffer stock helped support through that gap on lead time expansion. And we still in that, with that, with that said, we still had suppliers locally within our campus supply chain model and maybe saw base raw materials pushing out or whatever. But us being able to sit with them and maybe do some re-engineering of designing in alternate materials because of the locality, we weren't tied to 13-hour types or we weren't tied to language barriers. We weren't tied to the lack of capability from a re-engineering point of view with some of the offshoring capabilities. So we were able to deploy our supplier operational experts team to go out and fix the problems. And the problems were... Did we have some buyers bubbling through the supply chain? Yes, but not as many as maybe folks who had deployed a, more of an offshoring strategy. Well, it's interesting. Um, a lot of the consultancies, um, I think McKinsey and Deloitte uh, come immediately to <clears throat> mind, um, are talking about, when they talk about resilience, they talk about um, being able, and I mean like component suppliers as well as manufacturers, um, storing more inventory. Yeah. Um, I spoke to a global distributor about this some some time ago, and I said, "Do you see any indication that your your customers are, you know, buying and taking possession more dis, uh, more inventory?" And they're like, "No, we never will. It's a cash outlay. Um, you know, our whole business model is is still based on you know lean, just through time. Um, and if they're doing that, we're not seeing it. So it's pretty interesting." Yeah, it's interesting it, it, dynamic. It is definitely interesting. I mean, yeah, I mean we're we 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 don't a company, we run a business, so so cash flow is important. Tying cash up in inventory is less than desirable. But there's there's certain base commodities where they're not gonna lose their value. They're not gonna lose their value if anything they appreciate value, especially when you look at prices just now, because I, I think there's a capacity and lead time thing going on, but there's also old price pricing going on. It's that equilibrium on demand and supply where yeah. If uh, demand outstrips supply, guess what price goes up? If it's the other way about, guess what price goes down? And uh, so, yeah, we've we've made investments in inventory, and that's that's the balance that I've got to I've got to have. But we've we've we we, 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 we we're really engineering ourselves through supply chain, and it's it's resonating well with a lot of our customers. What is the average life cycle of the kind of the equipment that you design and manufacture? Yeah, I mean, we, we've got product life cycles that will range from 10 to 20 years. Yeah. And, and, and that's really science-driven, technology-driven. I mean, well, what we do is is very specialised of, hey, there's a new disease state or there's a new pandemic out in the world. How do you test for this on volume and how do you deploy that? So th these are... From a regulatory approval point of view, not necessarily on the insured, but the assays, the chemistry test that's ran, the validation cycle of that is super long. So once that's designed into an instrument, to change that is super difficult. It's something that I can never see being commercialized. Yeah, you've got point of you've got point of care or point of use instruments, but still using the same base chemistry, and it's just the throughput of those things are very, those instruments are very constrained and the accuracy is very constrained. So our typical lifestyle cycle of products, 10 to 20 years. Uh, and our business is not just manufacturing those instruments, our business is also 
uh, about providing analytics on the instruments around mm -hmm. reliability of certain modules. When we design the instruments, we design the instruments for modularization, knowing that there might be a semiconductor, there might be a motor, there might be a camera, there might be something in the instrument that just from a, a life cycle analysis point of view will go end of life. So the, why I say the early supply involvement, early design involvement, designing for that life cycle is key, uh, which is part of the reason why I think we've done well through the pandemic because lead times increase. And I think we've not talked about it is, uh, as you see, lead times increasing and extending, you also get more obsolescence coming mm -hmm. in where these chip providers, whether it's a, a capacitor or a resistor or a semiconductor guy, they start to multiple product. I mean, if, well, that if, gonna, if you're going to build a new fab, you might as well, you know, build the, you know, the five nanometer fab rather yeah. than keep your own fab. Exactly. So the architecture we lay down or designed for has that in consideration. So there's that flexibility. So we, uh, we, we spend a lot of time servicing our customers around spare parts because you know, the instruments that we have, the instruments we place have good parts that need replaced like the tires and the brake pads in your car. So managing that whole model and the serviceability. So uh, one of the really cool things that we're bringing to the table is predictive maintenance and asset uptake. You look at some of our customer base, a lot of our customer base in the life sciences space, they, they measure their, their equipment base based on uh, equipment utilization or equipment runtime because that's where they get paid on the test kits, right? Yeah. So if they're running at 80% efficiency or 80% utilization, there's revenue they're leaving on the table. If that 80% is split up because a motor fails, not because it was a bad motor, but because the motors ran beyond its useful life mm -hmm. and they have unplanned downtime, well, how do they navigate against that? KMC's got a lot of very unique capability that we own content on from an IP point of view and asset management, right? In terms of doing predictive analytics and censoring of these technologies and these components to give regression curves and this is going to fail then and this is looks this motor's overheating next time a service tech's in for routine care attention, check it out. That's capability that we're leveraging from our, our defense business because we've got commercially the honest group where I say obsolescence is a big problem. So, so it, 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 I mean, it's, it's it's the merging of all these technologies. It's 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 super exciting. Great. Well, thank you for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you, Barb. That was Barb Jorgensen, editor of our sister publication EPS News, speaking with Derek Kane, vice president of KMC Systems. Speaking of our sister publications, another is Electronic Products Magazine. EP has been one of the leading resources for product news for half a century now, and it still hosts one of the original Product of the Year awards. It's my pleasure to introduce EP editor Gina Roos. Hi, Brian. Thank you for inviting me to this week's podcast. I'm Gina Roos, Editor-in-Chief of Electronic Products, and I am excited and proud to present the Electronic Products Annual Product of the Year Awards, now in its 46th year. Uh, this year, we had over 150 submissions for 10 product categories. These include analog and mixed signal ICs, digital ICs, electromechanical devices, interconnects, passives, optoelectronics, power, RF microwave, sensors, and test measurement. 
When you review hundreds of products, you are reminded that there are so many technology innovations being worked on across the electronic components industry all the time. It's all pretty amazing stuff. Many of the advances tackle power consumption, efficiency, and integration, but not just in terms of space savings. The integration solves performance challenges as well. And these advances are not just in the semiconductor and power categories. IP&E products also have shown some significant advances over the past year. One example is Bourne's isomorph protectors that integrate the gas discharge tube, GDT, function directly into the MOV, the metal oxide varista itself. It significantly improves performance and the reliability, as well as saves a lot of space by eliminating the discrete GDT. The winners are featured on the Electronic Products website now. Please visit electronicproducts.com to check out the award winners. We'd like to thank our guest today, Derek Kane of KMC Systems, interviewed by my colleague, Barb Jorgensen, editor of EPS News. That's it for this episode of The Weekly Briefing. Thank you for listening. The Weekly Briefing is available through the major podcast platforms, but if you go to our website, you'll find a transcript along with direct links to other stories we've mentioned and other resources. The Weekly Briefing is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.